0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Omari Averett Phillips, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Joshua Myers about his new book of Black Study. Dr. Joshua Myers, welcome to the show.
0: Oh, thanks, brother. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing doing great. How are you doing?
0: Awesome. I'm doing well.
1: Good, good. Uh, Well, I wonder if you could just start the interview just by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Yeah. um, So, wow. Originally from Orangeburg, South Carolina. um, And, you know, grew up in a very black town. And with the perspective of two HBCUs, um, Claflin University and South Carolina State University, um, black institutions sort of shaped me. Um, and so I knew that, you know, when I went to college, I wanted to go to an HBCU. Um, so I ended up going to Howard university, uh, long story short, that's where I discovered black studies and, uh, ended up getting my PhD in African-American studies at Temple. And now I'm back at Howard, been back for a decade now, um, teaching black studies. Um, and so at some point, <laughs> um, The bug got me, um, I guess, but it was, I think it was inevitable in many respects. I think when I really consider my background, Um, but that's how I sort of arrived to this particular moment. It was through Black institutions, um, through Black communities. So, how did you come
1: to this uh, specific project?
0: So, this was something that I think may have started in my undergraduate development at Howard. Um, But certainly by the time I got to graduate school, I spent a lot of time thinking about the nature of Africana studies as a distinct intellectual project and as a distinct practice. Um, Working with my undergraduate mentor, uh, Greg Carr, um, my graduate advisor at Temple, Nathaniel Norman, who both had uh, various projects um, underway that were defining what Africana studies was as a discipline, it sort of naturally became part of what I wanted to do as well. Um, With Normant, whose recent text, African American Studies, The Discipline, and his dimensions is critical, I was able to delve deeply into the Black intellectual tradition as it related to academic disciplines. Um, Early on, you know, I was disabused of the notion that Africana studies was simply a collection of Black thought in different disciplines, let alone like a synonym for African-American history. But I needed to know what more about the ways Black thinkers engaged that question. And so in grad school, I would find that there were struggles happening within those disciplines, with with Black people in those disciplines. And these were struggles that in many ways mirrored what was happening in the Black world, in the streets, right? And so I think of, like, Jacob Carruthers, for instance, linking Carter G. Whitson and H. Rapp Brown in his pamphlet, Science and Oppression. And so these were not simply Black academics, Black intellectuals struggling to earn tenure and get publications out, even though that's part of it. There is an epistemological break, that they are also making. And it's from that foundation that I start to understand the nature of that break. This led me to my own dissertation project. And in my dissertation, I considered the literature of academic, institutional, and disciplinary developments as they concerned the structures of the humanities and the social sciences, and then how Black intellectuals confronted this entire architecture. And so of Black study, is basically me doing that in a different form than a dissertation, than a study itself, right? It's a reformatting, it's a reframing, but the essential concern is there. What is black studies as a discipline, as a non-discipline, as a meta-discipline, as a whatever we wanna say, right? As an intellectual practice that is distinct, what is black studies? And for me, I thought that you know one way to reformat this is to use intellectual biography as a, as a covering for this more direct engagement, uh, with the nature of this epistemological break.
1: Awesome. Well, let's, I guess let's get into that then. What, what is black study? What is black studies?
0: Yes. So I use black study as a kind of way to frame some frame a practice that's beyond just what we can do in the academy. Um, black study for me is the break. It is a term that speaks to the nature of Black thinking and study that happens regardless of of and often in spite of the institutional formations that have been imagined to restrict and negate Black life, which I would argue is the academy, but not just the academy, but the whole system that we find ourselves in. Black study precedes that and it exceeds that and its limits. And so because it's before and beyond, it was there for scholars who were surrounded, as I write um, in the introduction. It was there for them to pick it up. It was there for those who wanted to imagine differently. It was there for them, but they did not create it. They did extend it, though. And so this is a tradition of... Thinking is an orientation towards thought. It's a way of being, it's a way of imagining, it's also a way of writing, it's a way of creating in terms of the artistic posture. And so I'm using this term because it has been out there for a while. Um and it's a sensibility that is is more a sensibility than it is a definition and a practice. And of course we're borrowing from Stefano O'Harney and Fred Moten's 2013 book, The Undercommons*. When I read that book, that sensibility immediately resonated because this is how I was actually introduced to the practice of, of thinking and studying together. Um, they were describing something that I had felt before. Um, and so this book offers less of a definition of that and more of a way of relating to that. To that posture to that orientation to that tradition and for me you know part of what we have to do to practice or to be within the realms of black studies is to kind of lie prostrate before the altar of black beingness and black livingness knowing that this is the only way to study ourselves right and knowing that if none of this makes sense it's because of the ways we've been socialized and trained to study ourselves, right? In other words, Black study is a breaking away of how we've always been taught to see ourselves by this particular academic and societal structure. Once we make that break, we can pick up where the socialization and the training left us, which is often um, left us feeling as if we were bereft of even thinking um, ourselves in a way that we actually felt. Um, And so who are we? And what are we? And how did we come to be? There's a way in which the traditional knowledge structures can't answer those questions for us, but Black study can. And it is Black study that offers that to us in an extended way, in a long view genealogy that, you know, in some ways rubs up against the academy, but has never been synonymous with the academy. Awesome.
1: And can you talk to us a little bit about the organization of this book, right? So who are the biographical subjects of this work? And how did you sort of settle on the figures that
0: you did? It was the people that helped me see the things that I just got finished describing, right? And so I had to make a choice. I had to make a choice to not do it all in this book. And I tried to do it all in my dissertation. uh, But I couldn't do that for um, this book. And that was a choice that Took me a couple years to realize that I couldn't, right? Um, And so what happened was I was doing other kinds of things, um, primarily in, in terms of teaching, because part of what I think gets left out of the conversation too often is how this must inform the way that we teach. And I've had the pleasure of teaching introduction to Africana studies for the last 12 years in various ways, in various formats. And so there there are certain things that I found resonated with students when it came to conceptualizing this tradition. And one of the things that resonated was when they got the ability to see life or a life as the sort of glue that knit that that allowed these traditions to be presented to them. And so I thought about that. I thought about, well, how does this connect to them understanding the tradition by understanding lives or different lives? And I started to teach that way. And because I was teaching that way, it became necessary for me to think about, well, maybe I could write about black study that way too. And so, I I chose peoples that not only that I taught, but that also taught me, at least conceptually, what this break was always about. And that's how I landed on the people that I landed on. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, Sylvia Winter, Jacob Carruthers, Cedric Robinson. In some ways, I had taught all of them, but in others, they had helped me um sort of conceive of black studies. And then of course, once I got that done, it was a question of, well, what does this feel like? What should it feel like to do this work? And so that's where I went to June Jordan and Tony Cade Rambara, who also, you know, taught in Black Studies in many ways, but also they were they were connected to this tradition as writers who evoked a sensibility that one could literally reach out and touch and feel. And that's why I wanted to do with this book as well. So that's how they came about and that's how this sort of book is, is organized. You know, these are people who thought about black life differently than what their disciplines trained them to do, right? So how did they confront this, not just within their disciplines, but the whole structure of knowledge and the things that that structure sort of presented to them as norm, as the norm, right? The separation between the thinker and the thing being thought, um, the, the idea that knowing was a privileged endeavor only available and accessible to an elite, um, that elite then becomes the self and everything that's not the elite becomes the other. Right. And all of these formulae, which of course, are central to the development of disciplines. And I think it's Winter and it's Robinson and his Carruthers primarily who show that in their work. And it's Du Bois who has to confront that even as he doesn't name it all the time. And so that being said, there are many others who could I could have written about, right? I could have written about uh, Vincent Harding, who is someone I, I think I eventually will write about, right? Because he's doing the same thing. Um, You know, I could have written about Hortense Spillers. Um, She's doing many of the same things. There's so many people, um, particularly the generation who got their PhDs in the 60s and the 70s and into the early 80s, who are doing similar things with knowledge, the knowledge that they have been sort of trained to acquire, and then the knowledge that they bring from other alternative formations that represent Black life in its own way. There are many people that could've that we could have written about. In fact, this is about a whole tradition that in many ways that generation uh, represents. And so and represent it well. And so it's my hope that, you know, by presenting that that there are newer generations who could also understand and feel themselves to this particular sensibility and orientation because I think it's I think it's necessary, um, in many respects if we're ever going to Fully inherit, as Jarvis Gibbons and Joshua Bennett write about in their special issue of Souls. If we're ever going to fully inherit black studies, we have to inherit this sensibility to.
1: And I, I want to get into, I think, uh, a little bit of the book, but you brought up teaching and oftentimes teaching, I feel like, is the, th- the other thing that we do, right? As opposed to like sort of the research, which is considered sort of the, the actual work. And so I'm just wondering, could, could you talk a little bit about your approach to the classroom, right? How do you view teaching? How do you view uh, the classroom? What are some of the things that you like to do within the classroom? And do you, do you see it as sort of the other thing or do you see it as sort of very important to the work that you do?
0: It's definitely not the other thing. It's the thing that dominates (laughs) for me. Um, Not only because, you know, I teach a full load, it's also because if we're not here for students, you know, it's hard to imagine us being relevant in any respect, right? Um, You know, the text, the book is almost, you know, writing (laughs) in this particular format and in this form, you know I hate to say it you know it feels like it's obsolete sometimes, right? Um, but if we write as a as a way to inform our teaching or if we engage with the text or and and or our research as a way to inform our teaching, it enlivens the writing differently and that's something that I think we have to understand that you know these aren't two separate practices they go together. I think, you know, the powers that be who determine our worth and create metrics for determining our worth also see them as separate. And sometimes we accept that, but I believe that they should in fact go hand in hand. And what's beautiful about the classroom is you can actually work out ideas in real time. You can see what resonates. You can see how collective knowledge production, right, might be a better way for academics to think about their own individual contributions, right? Um, and so all of my books come out of that. Like my first book was a collective, was a collective contribution. My name is on the, on the cover, but it's a collective contribution. Um, uh, my second book, um, you know, it, it comes out of that same sense of collectivity where I'm taking students through all of Cedric Robinson's writings and that's informing how I then write about his life because I am hearing what they are getting and I'm hearing what, um, others are seeing and saying, and I'm realizing that this is something that we need to kind of punctuate in, in the writing of who Cedric Robinson was. And my third book, of course, it was the, it was the classroom as well. And seeing what resonated with students and seeing what needed to be elaborated on and seeing how they're feeling about their particular position in the black studies and Africana studies and how to sort of connect with their feelings to what has already been said. So um, for me, it's inherently uh, connected. and of course, the classroom is not just the classroom, the classroom is also the hallway. The classroom is also advising student organizations. The classroom is also participating in events on campus and in the community. The classroom is also organizing study groups that are not necessarily connected to uh, the university. The classroom is also, Doing what we're doing right now. Right. And so there are many different ways that we can bring sort of narrow lecture or the narrow seminar into a different kind of practice that then differently resonates. And I think that if you are honest about it as a scholar, your writing should change as a consequence of that.
1: Absolutely. And th- thank you for that. Someone that cares very much about the classroom and cares very much about education in all of its forms. It's wonderful to sort of hear that. Um, so let's, let's jump into sort of this, into this work of yours. So uh, you talked a little bit about the introduction and how it sort of focuses upon June Jordan. Um, and I wonder if you could just give us a little bit more, right? What does June Jordan represent in, in this source, in this study of black studies and why did you place your analysis of her work in the introduction?
0: I mean, that's a, that's a great question question It allows me to kind of think about it more because you know I, I don't see it as an analysis per se i frame it as more of a meditation um because i didn't really have the space or the opportunity to do a full analytical treatment for now i think you know we have to we have to bring jordan as she talked about talks about bringing back the person we got to bring june jordan back in many respects because This is Black Studies in its initial academic, institutional incarnation in the West. It's people like June Jordan. And I'm thinking about her nurturing Black Studies with her colleagues at City College and her students at City College, but also just Black people in New York, Black and Puerto Rican people in New York. Um, And so she writes this essay at the height of that moment that is so important for me, right? Black studies, bringing back the person. It's been on my syllabus for the last 11 years. Um, well, it's a, the quote, the epigraph of my syllabus. And she writes in that piece that I think is a central central conceptual pivot when that is foundational to Black studies. She writes in that piece that we are the primary sources of information. It's a very interesting we here because the we she's talking about are the we that have been that have been marginalized from academic spaces, that we that had been taken away uh, from the university and brought back, or it came back, or not just taken away, had never been considered. Um, and so, the idea that we can be primary sources is, of course, a confront confrontation with the academy's ways of knowing, the ways of studying. It's a confrontation with the authorities that are dominant in knowledge production. I mean, it it displaces in many ways, the archival document. It displaces the experiment. It displaces many of the qualitative methods that are somehow seen as superior than simply existing as the primary source yourself. in fact, we're not supposed to say that we are involved in our work, right? We we're supposed to be objective, right? But she says, no, we are the primary sources of information. And what that did is it gave students and faculty to the extent that they had been marginalized. It gave them the authority to tell their own stories, to frame their own realities, and to also, and this is the critical part, to also imagine freedom imagine, imagine liberation as issuing from that framing. This is the critical intervention that defines Black studies, and it is not, as, as some might argue, you know, there's this kind of idea of, you know, the derogatory term like me search or um, many other ways that people sort of kind of clown this notion of, of, of Black knowledges. But it doesn't close down poss- the possibilities, it opens them up. And Africana Studies has yet to fully chart a path towards a methodology that takes seriously that we are the primary sources of information. Of course, we've started, and we've been struggling. We haven't fully realized it yet. Um, But, you know, there are other critical interventions that she makes along with that essay. Um, Several of them them I cite in the meditation that opens the book, but she begins to talk about this notion of life studies, um, which is why I deploy the word living in the subtitle. I mean, that's really what it's about. Right. Living. How do we live? How do we live? How might we live? Right. So I offered this as a meditation because it just we need more reminders of of those moments. Right. And we need a reminder of where June Jordan actually got her one of her starts as both a writer and a thinker. And that moment follows her wherever she goes. And so Black Study becomes following June Jordan, following June Jordan's whole life, right, and trying to carry us toward that moment that makes her June Jordan. So that's why I begin there.
1: And from there, your your first chapter focuses on W. B. Du Bois, and uh, you titled this chapter "Of Hesitance." So, what is hesitance, and how does Du Bois fit into this concept? And again, another question at level here: uh, What role does this concept sort of play in our understanding of Black
0: studies? Yeah, so I think you know I was thinking about a word that might help me frame Du Bois's own contribution to the sort of way that I was thinking about black studies. And we were in an interesting moment. I started writing this, I don't know, 2011, I guess, 2011, 2012, somewhere in there. Um, And it's an interesting moment because I think in the year 2012, Du Bois received his long belated appointment (laughs) to the University of Pennsylvania as a full faculty member. Um, which I felt was, you know, interesting. And they had a whole conference to celebrate this. And I thought it was interesting because at that conference, there were several scholars who were framing Du Bois as the founder of their own disciplines. And I thought that was very peculiar. And it was only at the last panel that somebody mentioned Black Studies or Africana Studies. Um, And I thought, hmm. Isn't that interesting? Du Bois is the founder of all of these things. (laughs) And so the next year, uh, we celebrated, or commemorated, I should say, um, 50 years after his passing at Atlanta. Stephanie Evans, by the way, Takufu Zubari did the first conference at Penn, uh, organized it along with many other people at Penn. And then Stephanie Evans the did, did, did a conference at Du Bois's academic home, in many respects, Clark Atlanta University, um, an institution that did not hesitate to give him a full academic position in the 19th century. Um, of course, you know, they would later force him to retire, but that's another conversation. At that particular convening, it felt more like who Du Bois was. Because you had not only scholars and academics, but you had people who were connected to community struggle and artists and folk who similarly would have been discarded had it not been for a black institution where they could find a home. right? And in that particular moment, I gave a talk around, in that particular convening, I gave a talk on his essay, Sociology Hesitant. And I call the talk Science Hesitant, because in that particular essay, he's not just talking about the discipline of sociology. He's talking about the whole of Western science. It's really a, his earliest foray in the philosophy of science. And I had been grappling with this because, I said, as I said earlier, I'm grappling with the ways in which black scholars confront the architecture of Western knowledge. And here Du Bois is in 1905 writing a critique of the idea that one could learn with exactitude how human beings behave. And in that article, there's no mention of black people. But as Ronald A.T. Judy writes, the Negro sits at the edge of that essay because what he, what is Du Bois doing in 1905? He's organizing the Atlanta University Publications, which is really and truly the first academic incarnation of something that we might call black studies in the United States. He's thinking about science and black people at the same time. And so what this means for us is that Du Bois found something about sociology wanting, and it was not just the way it ignored black life or misread black life. It was something in the way that it sought to achieve universal laws and apply them to black life. Du Bois said that there is law And then there is chance. I think chance is a way for us to practice our hesitance for we know what we know then, we know now what we know then, that there is something that continues to be foul about the way sociology approaches black life. And so hesitance becomes this mode of tentativeness. It is contemplative. It is thinking about different possibilities before you move on to the next step. It's not rushing in. It's not assuming anything. Is stopping and pausing to consider. Hesitance then becomes a place to really think about the place we are, and the practice of thinking that we have inherited again. And some of us have to deal with with the ways that that inheritance may or may not be applicable to who we really see ourselves as. And for Du Bois, that hesitance is what allows him to practice something different in what eventually becomes mainstream Western or United States, even sociology.
1: And chapter two focuses on Sylvia Winter, and you write that her work, and I quote, reveals that this hegemonic assumption of liberal ontologies can be dangerous locating much of her critique in the question of the human. Likewise, this chapter is titled Of Human. Uh, So can you explain Winters' pursuit of the, as you state, sort of the re-narrativization of the human and how this connects to our understanding of black study?
0: Yes, I can, but I don't know if I can do it quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Take your time, take your time. It's very important to the study of black life, but she is often framed as important to only the study of the thing that externally restricts or negates Black life. In this chapter, I wanted to show both sides of her. And doing that meant thinking about winter before 1984. And I kind of pulled that year out, but you know that's the year um, that she writes or publishes. The Ceremony Must Be Found," um, this big article that has elements of so much of what she would do later in it. Um, but before 1984, what is Winter doing? This is a really interesting question. Um, There's a scholar, and I hope I don't mess up the name, Norval Edwards, who's written about this as well, um, the pre-1984 Winter. <laughs> Um, But she's involved in a lot of different things, of course, the novels and the plays, but also the early essays on literary criticism that I think are important for positioning, not just, you know, the emergence of man, as she would write later, but also positioning Black resistance, positioning Black cultural authority, positioning Black humanity. And it is there where I resonate most with winter's contribution and that comes before she reveals the hegemonic assumption of liberal ontologies <laughs> right that's before that happens right she foregrounds her study of the human with the study of black life and so the western this western conceit that we're trying to confront and understand all begins with the idea of the self as the knower. so it means that they had to define the self and so what, that's what Winters' work does later. She t- it takes us through that whole process and allows us to see how it ended up over-determining the modern world's development. And so this includes race, it includes gender, it includes class, it includes sexuality, it includes all manner of division that is necessary to maintain a coherent self as against an unwieldy and antagonistic and threatening other. The academic disciplines are implicated in all of this. This is what I write about And so Winter shows us this. And the humanities as they develop, the social sciences as they develop, become discourses about the self. This imagined self that represents power, that represents truth, that represents freedom, that even represents being. But as I said, this is only one part. Um, This is not all she wrote. Um, But for Winter, also for Winter, Black life is not... Simply that, right? It's not simply being the other to man. It is more complex. And it is in Winter's acknowledgement of the existence of an underlife. She uses the word underlife. And it's there where we not simply live, but we chart ways of living that are not reducible to the Western conceit of man or the human. It is there where we can find all around us what it means to really practice and do black life but also black study because winter is very clear is that that is where the energy for doing intellectual work differently will come from
1: and chapter three focuses on jacob crothers of who you write his uh, invocation of speech as foundational to african life introduced a complex conceptual system methodology for thinking about reality that is not yet been considered uh, together with many recent black studies interventions. Uh, can you just further explain this invocation of speech and explain what we'd learned by complying it with other sort of black studies
0: interventions? Sure. I think mean, you know, as I explain this in more rigorous detail in the book, but Carruthers lands on speech because it's a way of knowing reality. And that's essentially what, you know, knowledge production ultimately goes back to at some point. What is real? Right. What is real? And Africans, according to Carruthers, comprehend the real by the ability to name it and to name our relationship to it, which includes both the written and oral text. But written and oral text share something. They share the power of creation. They mirror creation. What Ayi Kwei Armas calls the best words, right? The best words allow creation, right? And we, you know, now we talk about things like manifesting, and you know, all those. It's a deeply African concepts, but so for Carruthers, they must also be how we orient the study of Black life. Instead of assuming the categorizations that we assume about Black life, or that's their political reality, or that's their historical reality or that's their social reality, or that's their scientific reality. Carruthers says, just look for speech. Speech is their reality. And what that does is it displaces all of the ways of knowing reality that assume that Black life, in order to fit into the category that we believe is the category, must look a certain way. And so we we get rid of the whole... Well, what's a state? Is there such a thing as an African state? All right. We no longer ask the question, well, what is literature? Is there an African literature? We no longer deal with the nonsense of assuming that because the ways that we do things don't fit other people's definitions of those things, that those things do not exist in the same way. Carruthers does this with the discipline of philosophy, which allows him to liberate speech as a way to understand every other thing about reality, which of course Africans had already been doing. But the key here is that same power to create, that same power to imagine, which is foundational to notions of speech, is also the thing that allowed us to resist In the new world in other words it's because we had this facility facility to imagine differently and articulate that through speech and speech of course is not synonymous i talk about this in the book it's not synonymous synonymous with talking right speech is more profound than, than simply talking but the ability to do that is what made resistance possible And so Carruthers is dealing with ancient African history and dealing with the ability of black folks to tap into that genealogy in what the Egyptians call times of trouble. Western enslavement, Western colonialism, all of that is a long time of trouble that requires Africans to engage with this tradition of speech in order to not only confront the system, but also to create life anew. And so, what that looks like in Africana studies? Well, it looks like us interrogating again the ways that we've been socializing the academy to define and name what it is we are doing when we see Black people do things. What it is? Are we? What is the definition of Black assertion, or what is the definition of Black self-determination? Like all of these things that we see Black people doing. We then tend to put them in categories that are legible within the disciplines that we're trained in. Fucker others, you can do that, but you're never going to get to the core of what is happening if you do that. And that's where his contribution, I think, has deep resonance for Africana Studies, because Africana Studies is the discipline that can say, well, if it's not that, then what is it? What, what, it, what is it that they are actually doing? Africana studies should be in a position to say, well, this is what it is. But it takes, as I write in the chapter, it takes a lot of study of alternative ways of conceiving reality. And for Carruthers, it starts with speech because speech is is how we get to language. And the language is how we get to naming things. So that's the short answer. (laughs)
1: And uh, chapter four focuses on uh, Cedric Robinson, and you write that for Robinson, and I quote, the meaning, of, or, the meaning of order could be seen as antithetical to certain African systems of society, and the academic disciplines of support order were unwelcome tools for excavating uh, Black radicalism. Uh, could you just expand on this definition of order and how Robinson interacted with and also disrupted this idea of order?
0: So, yeah, um, it's connected to everything that we just said, right? Because order is it requires a definition of the self, of the human. It requires also um, that those who control or those who have power be able to convince you that they have power, right? And so there's a way of articulation that gets tied into a mode of articulation that gets and tied, in, tied into the kind of construction of order, um, but it's not necessarily my definition per se um, that, that matters here. It's, it's really how Robinson's word order becomes a word for understanding how political societies produce obedience. And the implications are very, very real here because clearly obedience is how things maintain the status, how, we, how, how the status quo is maintained, right? And so one of the most important bastions of obedience just happens to be the academy, (laughs) right? Disciplines are doing the same project as political societies are. I think that's the link I wanted to make, in fact, right? Political order requires academic order and vice versa. Academic order requires political order, which is why we see in labor struggles in the university or student struggles in the university, the invocation of this is out of order, right? And when it's out of order, political control steps in, right? And even in ways that we see what's happening in, in, in Florida, right? Political control over what is considered to be disorder to the academy. And so it becomes a problem when we seek academic order or when we think academic order can solve or explain or even contain Black radicalism because Black radicalism is a rejection of that order. And one of the things I wanted to do in the book, you know, because, you know, there is also my biography of of Robinson. But in this particular book, I wanted to peel back the connection that exists between Robinson's first two books, the terms of order and black Marxism, which in in many people's minds are two different topics, (laughs) actually go hand in hand. I think people shy away from the terms of order. Um, but they go hand in hand. When can I understand what Black folk were really fighting against if they don't understand the thing that Black folk are fighting against, which is order. But, uh, usually when we find people reading Robinson, they're reading Black Marxism. And I think by connecting it to the terms of order and to this conversation about Robinson's relationship to politics, to the question of politics, um, we can get closer to an honest grappling with his work and you know it will it will help us because without it very few people will recognize that these things are linked that political order is linked to racial capitalism for instance right and that all of it is the province of western in a western intellectual tradition that robinson consistently confronts in his work right And so you can't start with racial capitalism and get there, right? You have to racial link racial capitalism to questions of order, to questions of the very idea of politics, and then, you, and then you can get there. And I think that's the implication of making these connections in his work.
1: So in your introduction, you write that the disciplines get to claim Black studies by our proxy and our unwillingness to reject them what do you think is the role of sort of black studies within the academy? Do you think there's a role for black studies within the academy at all?
0: So I think that, that line is very, you know, I was kind of shady, but that line was, was there because if we don't make a claim on the language, black studies, right. And say that to evoke this language is to evoke all of the tradition that I'm talking about. Then anybody can claim it. Right. And the, the thing that's been happening, you know, ever since I've been in the, in the academy is administrators, but also other academics who see simply black subject matter, conflate that with black studies. And if you can get away with that, you can easily displace anything that comes across as radical. Because you can say Well, we have Black Studies. It's right over there with a scholar that studies Black people. As opposed to we have Black Studies, which, of course, is part and parcel of this tradition that June Jordan represents that allows students to see themselves as the primary sources of information. And when you talk to students, and I talk to students all the time, graduate students primarily primarily. And then my own undergraduate students, once they see black studies in the way that I'm describing it and writing about it, and then go back to another place where it's just a study of black stuff, they know and feel the difference. And they realize black subject matter studies is not enough for me. And so that's where that line comes from. Um, And so part of of the impetus, I know you you might ask this later, but... That's part of the thing that I want folk to take away is that, you know, you don't get to claim black studies just by studying black people. It's much more complicated than that. And to your question, I think black studies has already demonstrated that it can exist in the academy. But the academy has often used that existence as a way to take away so much of what makes black studies so powerful at the same time. And this is the tricky part, right? The full agenda of Black Studies has never been realized in the academy, and I don't know, you know, if it can. And I don't know if it can in a in a, a in a university system that does not fundamentally and revolutionarily change. Um, and so Tony Cade, who I write about in the end in the conclusion, says that you know, only a toppled university. <laughs> or a dismantled one, <laughs> right? Can truly can truly imagine this kind of black studies, right? No, she says either we topple it or reimagine it, or topple it or reframe it or recreate it. And, that, and I think that's true, right? You know, if you think about what even the College Board has suggested in terms of his Black Studies framework, right? That's uh, that's as as uh, Sylvia Winter might say. That's a cheap and easy black studies, because what it does is it simply says. Study black people. Make black people visible. And then you've done black studies. And I think, you know, for those who are. Part of the genealogy and the generation of folk who got their Ph.D.s in this particular discipline, who struggle in the National Council for Black Studies, our professional organization, um, who write the proposals for our graduate programs and write the grants for fundings in our grant. Those people know different. They know different. And I think that has to be said because in the future, it's going to be more of the former. It's going to be more claimants to Black Studies with no Black Studies skin in the game, if you will. With no black studies, sacrifice, if you will. Um, and that's really how I see things kind of un, unfurling in the future.
1: And so I know you basically just answered this question, but I'll ask it anyway, just in case there's more you might want to say around it. But what sort of audience did you imagine for this work?
0: This is an interesting one because, you know, when I first can see you, David, I thought this would be like graduate students. And I have a special place in my heart for those who choose to do graduate study in a discipline like African-American studies, where there's a lot of sacrifice that has to take place. And I wanted them to have a text that sort of made that sacrifice make sense, but also a text that would show them that you can and should be making this kind of sacrifice, but the book has been out for some time now. In fact, you know, in the, in, the, in the months before publication, I began to realize that, no, the audience is Black people, not just Black graduate students in African-American studies. The audience is Black people. And this was affirmed. Um, it was affirmed so many different ways. Every time that I have a conversation about this book, with other Black people, the conversation is different because people are taking it and looking at their own lives and seeing themselves through, th- through the text. And it's not just you know academic conversations. We launched a book in the community space. And then we did a launch with graduate students. And it was equally, for me, gratifying because people were able to see different things in the same text. So I've come to realize that the audience is black people and everyone else is invited because to say that it's for black people is to say that it's for the entire world.
1: And what what do you want readers to take away from
0: reading your book? Well, um, I wanted to take away the the sensibility that we can really engage in tradition without being restrictive, that this is expansive, right? This is not a club that is exclusive, but there are some things that you must do, right? At the same time, (laughs) there is a sensibility that you must have at the same time. Um, And so I don't know if there's anything more specific than that. I mean, probably each chapter we can say (laughs) there's something that I want you to take away. Right. I mean, I want folk to take away from the Du Bois chapter that, you know, Du Bois is not simply the founder of modern sociology. It's more complicated than that. Right. Or, for instance, I want to take away people to take away from the Cedric chapter, Cedric Robinson chapter, that, you know, he's not just the author of black Marxism. He's done more than that. But I mean, in a general sense. I think take away the sensibility, take away the feeling, take away the orientation. And then from there, anything else that people have or people have that people take away to kind of riff on what Tony Cade and June Jordan, um, what Tony Cade said to June Jordan on her first day of teaching, she said, anything that you have to give the students will take it. And so similarly, anything that people take away from this book, I'll take it because I'm realizing how expensive it is and how we can't as authors control everything about the process of reception, which is first uneasy. But then when you realize that I too can grow from what I've written based on how other people engage it, you can realize something differently about the whole writing process and the reception process. And that is you can't control everything. And this is a, and that's a great feeling.
1: Well, Dr. Myers, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, so I'll just ask one last question here. Uh,
0: what are you working on now? So that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> I'm working on teaching. So um, this is the first semester that I've had no project over my head since I've been teaching. <laughs> so I'm I'm really working on teaching. Um, I don't have, like I said, any academic projects that I'm working on at the current moment. Um, my next book project that I hoped that I hope to get published is actually um, a collection of poetry. It's called Holy, Go- Holy Ghost Key, um, and, it's a, and it's a collection of poems that were written in tandem with my experience of live music. Um, and so that's really the thing that's in terms of writing that's next for me. Um, I'm also working on several community based Black studies projects. Um, one is with Abdul Akilamat, uh, James Pope, Tazneen Siddiqui, uh, Kamal Rashid, and others, trying to create an intro course that is applicable not applicable, but that is available and is, is relevant to all peoples. It's called Intro for All. And I'm also working with the SNCC Legacy Project, um, Cortland Cox, Jury Augusto, Zahara Simmons, Charlie Cobb, um, and together with Black Studies scholars uh, Felicia Dinard um, and Bedur Allegra, uh, we are creating courses on the movement. <laughs> and so what does the Black Studies have to say about the civil rights era? Um, and so those courses too will be generated around the energy of being for college students and for everybody else who wants to take the course. Um, and so the unique thing about that project is that what we've been trying to do in the creation of these courses is center The visions that the veterans actually have about what they were doing when they did it. So that's kind of what's next for me.
1: I love it. I love it. Uh, Well, Dr. Joshua Myers, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation and take
0: care. All right. Thank you so much.